eyes bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this incredible honor of gathering together to fellowship in your Son's good name, to break bread, the very bread of life together. That is the Word of God. Father, thank you for allowing us to dine on it this morning. Thank you for your patience and your grace, your mercy and your love with each one of us as individuals and even as a ministry as we continue to grow in your grace and knowledge. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that face daily struggles. Uh, We know that it is by your grace that they are sufficiently provided for, but we also pray for them, Father, for speedy recovery. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that they're humbled and that they come to saving faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this even a reality. And we do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance? We're going to have a, a more, much more from the Spirit this morning. On this topic, we're going to, again, as we did on Thursday evening, speak to some of the strategy that our enemies use to redefine things. And repentance uh, happens to be one of those things that people in so-called Christendom Uh, have um, defined poorly. And as a result, there are even factions, believe it or not, in the churches over this particular topic. Um, But it's a strategy that Satan in the kingdom of darkness uses and has used very successfully successfully for his causes to divide uh, the church and to confuse the church. Um, so we're going to continue with that this morning. Before we dig in, go to Ephesians 2.1, just a lovely passage in Holy Scripture to kick off this morning's message. Ephesians 2.1, so much of what we've been learning as of late um, is encapsulated, if you would, in this beautiful passage of Scripture written by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 2.1, and it's a nice reminder for all of us as well as believers and as we go out with the great commission to evangelize individuals uh, that are in their spiritually dead condition still Ephesians 2 1 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins that's how we were born we were born spiritually dead and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By nature we were born naturally fallen 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, that's not, there's no mention, do you see? There's no mention of heaven or hell. Salvation has everything to do with being delivered from being dead in your sins and made alive. That's a very different gospel than what is being taught from most Christian churches, it seems, nowadays. Again, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, we know by grace all of this is possible. By grace it is only possible and therefore by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Of course, that's a reference to our position in Christ, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Do not forget verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We don't remain spiritually dead. Individuals that are made alive in Christ, we actually walk. We do. And that is one of the things that the Spirit's been bringing from this pulpit. A person who never walks after they profess salvation in Christ Jesus has a real problem. Thursday's lesson was interesting in the sense that it focused more on this key underlying strategy of Satan that I alluded to at the start of class, this underlying strategy of Satan in the churches, uh, than it did uh, on actual tactics. So we spent some time on Thursday uh, looking at a baseline strategy of redefining things. In other words, not necessarily the tactic of, a, of attacking, say, the gospel head-on, but rather using a different strategy go after definitions as a whole so that a person with perverse definitions can't arrive at the good news. They arrive at a different gospel that is peddled from a different spirit that talks about a different Jesus. And all you have to do, the strategy is to redefine things like grace, love, mercy, even repentance, and especially what is salvation. But we spent a year and a half, a year and a half on that, so we're not going to go uh, backwards in our studies. But anyways, Thursday's lesson really did highlight this key underlining strategy of Satan in the churches, uh, and this with regard to redefining things. What I mean to say is that we learned about the importance of having good definitions. Remember our last series, "What is good and who gets to define it?" We learned the importance of having good definitions resident in our souls. And then we also noted the tragedies that have occurred and are occurring in so-called Christian churches nowadays 
that don't have good definitions. It's abundantly clear that many Christians are quite deceived when it comes to fundamental aspects of God's essence even, such as love, grace, mercy, and as a result, salvation and sanctification. If you're going to undermine the concepts of salvation and sanctification, you don't necessarily have to hit them straight on. You just have to undermine the definitions of love, grace, mercy, repentance even. I had a conversation not too long ago with a so-called Christian who proclaimed faith in Christ. And this person has been such a professor for decades, multiple decades, several decades. And interestingly enough, when I asked them about how God sanctified them, this person didn't even know what sanctification meant. In fact, it turns out they believed that sanctification was something they had to perform on their own to get into heaven. That they had to be good enough on the grand scale so that they would be justified before God. Although they didn't use any of this theological language. I wasn't trying to say just because you don't know what sanctification or justification these big words are that you're lost. That's not. But this is what I gleaned out of the conversation. They didn't understand sanctification as a concept. They didn't understand justification as a concept. So my point is that this person to this day would argue tooth and nail with me that they are believers or a believer in Christ. Yet, they know nothing about Him or why He even died on the cross or what the Bible means when it speaks to salvation. They think salvation is something different than what I read in the Bible. They think they get saved from a destination. Well, I don't want to go to hell, so I want to go to heaven. No. That's why the Spirit opened up with Ephesians 2, to remind us that salvation is not about a destination, it's about deliverance. And even more startling than that is this same person believes that people aren't born spiritually dead, but rather good. In other words, this so-called Christian, this professor in Christ Jesus, who attends regular Bible studies at their church even, this is an active member, not some flippant passive member, believes that it's up to a person to lose their salvation by being too bad during their time on earth. That's not my gospel. That's not my Jesus. That's not even my God. And you probably guessed it, this person believes there are specific sins that take a person to hell. So there you have it, my friends, the reason for these lessons. And I'm not saying that I'm motivated by one or two people I've met. May it never be. I'm motivated by God the Holy Spirit to examine Holy Scriptures 
against what is evident in a world that is influenced and even led by the God of it, Satan himself. Speaking of Satan, I was just thinking of a way, and the way his strategies, the way he infiltrates uh, the churches even, and I was thinking of this analogy, so bear with me. If I know a young child's favorite food is ice cream, I'm not going to offer them a can of tuna fish as a treat. Am I? Right? In other words, they're going to go, you're way off. If I don't want said child to eat ice cream, let's say, but I want them to enjoy something, let's say, less healthy, or more healthy, I should say, I might offer them frozen yogurt and not tell them about it. And they may never know. Those are the tricks we play with our kids, right? We kind of lie to them. Oh, yeah, it's ice cream. I was thinking about (laughs) my wife Tammy lied to Sean once and told him that he was eating chicken and it was really pork. And he ate it. Right, Sean? And he thought it was chicken. And you know what? If he knew it was pork, he'd been, I don't like this. And he wouldn't have eaten it. What a liar she is. (laughs) See what I do when she's not here? I talk behind her back. (laughs) In any case, Satan's going to use sleight of hand, not a sledgehammer, to get people to swallow his false doctrines. And all along the way, of course, we true shepherds are screaming, liar, liar. Unfortunately, only those who have been given hearing from God can hear us. And that's you, by the way, if you're a believer. So listen up. I often find myself relating to Paul, who fought the same battles as I do today, just during different times, of course. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 10. So this is not novel. I think part of this spiritual gift is to be ultimately motivated as a shepherd to protect the flock. And Satan uh, dresses up as a wolf in sheep's clothing, and so do his agents, his people. 2 Corinthians 11.10 As the truth of Christ is in me, This boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. You see, Paul's ultimate motivation was love. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not stupid. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also 
disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. That's what I'm fighting against. That's what Paul fought against. Satan's very slick and deceptive. Therein lies my motivation, in case you've ever lost sight of it. This church, this ministry, these teachings, they are for you. Gifts from the Holy Spirit Himself to help you as Christ promised He would. To convict you, to enlighten you, to deliver you from the lies that encircle us. I stand before you as a man without choice. I had a conversation. I went to a, uh, a memorial service and someone I hadn't seen in a long time asked me about you know, my career. And most of you know I spent 20 years in high tech before I became, before I was called to the ministry. And this person said, well, why'd you do it? And I looked him straight in the eye and said, I didn't have a choice. And that's the fact of the matter. So I stand before you as a man without choice. I don't have a choice but to be here. Otherwise, I'm going to stand opposed to my Lord, my Master, my Great Shepherd. And a true believer knows that they do not have a choice. Oh, I kick, I complain, I murmur, but at the end of the day, I'm only going in one direction. My spiritual compass, my true north is set. And it's going all the way to eternity. I don't have a choice. So I stand before you as a man without choice, a slave whose master has clearly disseminated his orders, and with unmistakable clarity, he has commissioned this man on this day to continue to fight the good fight for you. For you. That's what this has all been about. I can hear Peter himself encouraging me from afar. Go to 1 Peter 5.1. 1 Peter 5.1. And you ought to be encouraged as well. Frankly, you ought to be exceptionally or feel exceptionally blessed to have a ministry like this that you're able to attend uh, face-to-face. 1 Peter 5.1 Therefore, I exhort, encourage the elders, pastors among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd is a different word than teach. I've taught you this. Poimano, it's a different word. There are a lot of good teachers, I believe, that are confused. Because they can teach the Word of God, they automatically think they're shepherds. Uh Uh-uh. This is a totally separate issue. Shepherding is the hard part of this job. And if you don't have the spiritual gift, you will fail. 
and you will fail the flock of God. Some of you have experience with it firsthand, and it's ugly, and it's gross, and the carnage is unspeakable. But this is the Apostle Peter saying, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Christ himself, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion. That's a reference to sovereignty forever and ever. Amen. So, I hope this cements the purpose of these eye-opening lessons over the past year or so into your souls. Truly, I do, because it's true what these are. And it's true that I love you all. And that I do these things out of love. A love that my Lord and Savior has given me. A love that God has imparted to my own soul. It's a selfless love. It's a often thankless job. It's a 24 by 7 job. But all of that aside, the, the fruit of this man's labor is that I'm cautioning you not to become dull of hearing. Not to become dull of hearing. Not to become spiritual zombies who just, you know, pretend that false profession isn't a real problem in the churches. Because, you know, it's easier to do it. It's easier just to pretend that that kind of thing doesn't even exist. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for the people you're supposed to be evangelizing. As the Spirit pointed out on Thursday, don't be naive. Using Jesus' name does not make Him one's Savior. Just because a person says they, quote, believe in Jesus doesn't mean they are saved. God must save them. People do not save themselves by jumping over a bar they have set. 
And the warning, at least on Thursday, was never be duped by the manipulative prowess of the human flesh. Never be duped by the manipulative prowess of the human flesh. I was reflecting on this topic. You know, arrogance has no real boundaries when pressed into a corner. It has no boundaries when pressed into a corner. In fact, it will invent a hundred ways to Sunday, ways to justify the means to its ungodly ends. It says, this is what I want. This is what I want. But I don't like the harassment in between. So I'll invent ways of getting there that reduce or mitigate the amount of, I don't know, personal suffering I have to go through. And what you'll find is these so-called Christians will use this as the means to their end. Arrogance has no problem using Holy Scripture to justify the end goal. We call that self-justification. People often use the Word of God to justify their own ungodliness. Satan certainly suggested this in the Garden of Eden and tempted Jesus to do so in the wilderness. Let's twist a little scripture, shall we, Jesus? Are you hungry? Turn this into bread so you can eat. All of you. Do you want that thing right there? We'll do this ungodly thing. And then use this verse over here, this passage over here, completely out of context, to justify that ungodly thing. You don't think that happens every day? Oh, but God loves me so much that He accommodates me. This is how God shows me He loves me. He shows me I'm so special, I'm so special that I get to break the rules. You don't think that happens? He loves me so much. I'm so special to my God. I don't expect you to understand it because we have this personal relationship, you see. He's my Jesus. He's my Jesus. And I treat him like I've treated my 15 husbands. Like a little puppet. I just want to control him, you see. But I'm a selfish lover, you see. So my expectation is that he's going to bend to my will. Because that's how much he loves me. And he shows me how much he loves me, tells me I'm that special, by breaking and bending the rules for me. Sorry, sweetheart. It doesn't work that way. Ask yourselves the following question. How many Jesuses do you think exist in this world? I just described one perversion of them. How many Jesuses do you think exist in this world? The answer is untold numbers. I've met men, like the person I explained to you earlier. Whose Jesus was that? Not mine. That's not my Jesus that that person was claiming as Lord and Savior. 
That's not my Jesus at all. It didn't sound anything like him. Matter of fact, the Bible describes someone completely different than that. See, in Christianity, everybody's got their own little Jesus. Some of them, sometimes they swing from the rearview mirror in their car. You know, he's like he's still on the cross type thing. Oh, that's my Jesus right there. You see, even he's like a little puppet. I take him out when I need him. But when I don't need him, I put him back in the case and I put him, you know, somewhere where I can't see him. Because it's not convenient when I don't need him. I don't want to hear his voice when I don't need him. Ask yourselves again this following question. How many Jesuses do you think exist in this world? <laughs> Lots of them. Just go talk to any so-called Christian and chances are you're going to meet another one. But there's only one. All right. So let's get back to the key principle from Thursday's lesson. And again, it's this running strategy, as I alluded to at the start of class. You know, and that's why I say, who gets to define dot, dot, dot. There's a lot of, let's call them for lack, for today's conversation, core doctrines, core aspects of God's very essence that have been redefined. But if we want to get in the straight and narrow, if we want to get this straight, we want to talk about the Lord correctly and represent Him properly, then we need to get our own definition straight. Man doesn't get to define who Jesus is or what He stands for. Jesus did a great job at defining himself. See Holy Scripture. The problem is that some aren't interested in the truth. Sadly, most, quote, Christians I meet are still completely enraptured with the details of life, the self-life, without any real regard for Jesus Christ our Lord. But yet they proclaim faith in Christ. How does that work? In fact, most of them seem to live an undisturbed life. And so they see no need for change. And as the Spirit's been pointing out, some of these people, possibly many, I don't know, maybe even the majority, I don't know, Remain in darkness. And these are Christians, quote-unquote. Their justification has been to rest on bad definitions. A favorite in Christian circles is the love of God. Only their definition of love is perverted, twisted, and completely self-serving, making it ungodly to its very core. As the spirits pointed out in the past, ungodly people are selfish lovers. Their very definition for love, quote-unquote, hinges on what they receive from others. Well, that's a sad affair. If, if your experience, just stop, if your experience of love is dependent on another human being, you're doomed. You are doomed. You, do you understand? 
But that's all they have. They have to depend on other people's flesh, other people, to prove to them that they're what? Worthy of being loved? And so everything they do is to seek someone else's approval, someone else's, quote, gift of love? You see, that's the, that's the perversion, though. Their very definition of love hinges on what they receive from others. For even what they give is a payment or a repayment tied to receiving. In other words, receiving something is their ultimate goal, not giving. When we know what Jesus represented, it's more blessed, blessed to give than to receive. If you want to understand God's love, if you want to be, or if you are transformed by His love, you become a giver. And you experience that love when you give. Selflessly. But a person in the flesh that has not been made alive in Christ, their definition is what they were born with, which is, love is when someone gives something to me. I know I'm loved because someone gives, but when they stop, what happens? Train wreck, hit the bottle, hit the street, go get it through sex, go get it through drugs, go get it through some other way. That's what happens to selfish lovers. Eventually, the people they're depending on fail. But you see, when you have God's love, it never fails. And he says, watch this. You give, you're going to love. You're going to understand what true love is because as I've taught you how many times in the past true love can't help but express itself it's one of the hallmarks of a true believer they want to express they want to evangelize for God so loved the world they want to express that kind of love by seeing other people saved by seeing other people receive eternal life that becomes your ultimate motivation in life. Not trying to find somebody to love you. <laughs> it's one of the hallmarks of a true Christian. You see, they have a perverted love. A love that's not biblical. And they suffer for it. My heart breaks daily watching it. Watching the promises that are peddled, especially through media. Well, you just haven't found the right guy yet. So you keep on trying. You just haven't found the right gal yet. Just keep on trying. Open yourself up, literally and figuratively. Keep on trying until things work out. Be a prostitute, for lack of a better term, because that's exactly what you're doing. Prostituting yourself out to the world. I know that's gross on a Sunday morning, but that's how ugly the flesh is in its ways, its selfish love. That is not biblical love. That's the kind of perverse love that some people even have the audacity to impose upon God Himself. They say, you want me to follow you? Show me you love me. Up here on the board, 
Again, who gets to define dot, dot, dot? For example, does godly love respect the privacy of man, or is it something distinctly different? In other words, does God have a right to dive into your life or not? Or do you get to say, nope, hands off, God, this is my world. And if you love me, you'll stay out there. Does God love the world so much that he allows man to save himself on his own terms? Or is salvation something distinctly different? Is, quote, grace different in each of these scenarios? The answer is yes. That's the problem. Up here on the board. Nowhere in Holy Scripture does it say that God gives his subjects, quote, personal privacy. But... That's effectively what some so-called Christians expect. You stay out there. I get to keep my self-life, even though Jesus said deny self. I get to keep my self-life. You give me heaven and a free ticket, but you stay over there in, in, a, in a broom closet. And I'll pull you out when I need you, but that's it. I'm going to live my own little life here. You see what I'm saying? And you love me so much that you respect my privacy. You respect my wishes to stay out of my life. Does that sound like the Bible to you? I would argue that's the average, quote, Christian today. God, you're over there, and I'm right in here. When I need you, I'll call you in, and when I don't, I'll push you out. Because I'm not interested in repentance, you see. I'm not interested in denying the self. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm a selfish lover. Tell me you love me, give me a free ticket to heaven, and we'll call it a day. Do you understand why I fight so hard? Do you understand? This is what exists in the churches, people. I know it's hard. You're like, well, that's not our church. How do you know? I can tell you it is, in part, for some. Because they tell me. Nowhere in Holy Scripture does it say that God gives His subjects personal privacy. In fact, just the opposite is true, as we've seen up here on the board, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Up here on the board, the truth about Jesus Christ is designed to convict unbelievers to the point where God's justice remains pristine whenever he saves them or sentences them to eternal death. God is gracious in both sentences. When the gavel comes down and the wheat and the tares are separated, he's gracious, he's been gracious in both sentences. But you see, there's a perversion of grace even. God would never do that. I shared that story with you on Thursday, I think, of the person who said, oh, all the kids, even though some of them were 17, 18 years old, all those poor kids that got shot in Florida in that school, they're all with Jesus now. And one person said, if they're saved, they are. Oh, no, Jesus would never do that. They've had a rough enough go as it is. He'll just take them in. What? What? Where is that in the Bible? Nowhere. But yet, if you took Mr. Baldy and that woman who was saying that and put him on public television, I'd probably get egged. And they would be praised 
Oh, yeah, the love. The love of God. This guy's a judgment preacher. What? It takes a heck of a lot more love to do this than this. Now, when Peter's audience asked him that familiar question, what shall we do? Peter answered very succinctly and without hesitation, as we've seen up here in the board, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, guess what? Repent. That's what you got to do. Repent. Repent, like Jesus, has become almost a swear word in Christian circles. Why? Because it doesn't accommodate man's flesh. That's why. Repentance would imply a person discover and then turn from an ungodly lifestyle. Imagine that. They would have to drop the so-called walls around themselves and let God in and say, I'm ready to be changed. I can't do it. I'm hopeless and helpless. Your spirit has convicted me of this thing. I'm going to drop these walls and you take it from here. And God says, finally, now I can save you. But you see, that's a swear word. And it's gotten so bad that well-to-do, supposedly, evangelists won't even use it, have almost taken it out of their vocabulary, or reserved it for post-salvation only conversations. That's a lie. That's not the gospel that Jesus taught. It's not the gospel that Peter taught. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a gift given to believers only, as we know. Is anyone here willing to suppose that the Apostle Peter did not possess an accurate definition for grace? Of course not. So we can say that Peter was a gracious man, for sure. Someone who understood that anything good demanded of us must be given to us by grace. So when he said repent, he wasn't confused in the moment. He didn't get caught up in the moment. He was the same gracious man that understood grace who also said repent. So we can rightly conclude up here on the board that repentance is grace. It is gracious to give a spiritually dead person the opportunity to turn from their sinfulness, especially when they are unable to do so without God's help. Repentance is grace. Furthermore, on the idea of repentance, grace, and love, it wouldn't be very loving or gracious, for that matter, if Jesus said, repent, but God never convicted a person first. There'd be nothing known to the individual that even warranted repentance. You see, a dead person doesn't know any better, do they? So somehow, God the Holy Spirit has to awaken that and say, you see the problem? I'm going to convict you that you're abiding in sin and that I'm holy and that you're not. 
Sounds like grace to me. It wouldn't be very loving or gracious for that matter if Jesus said repent, but God never convicted a person. First, there'd be nothing known to the individual that even warranted repentance. This would be cruel. God is not cruel. Given their salvation depends upon it. So to put things into perspective, up here on the board, it is divine love to convict a person regarding their need to repent. For salvation mandates a turning from the self-life, a denying self, as Jesus would say. Did Jesus say you have to go at this alone? Did he say that denying self was a human work? May it never be. He said, this is what you're going to have to do, though. Do you want it? I do. In humility, a person who says, I do, at that juncture, God can save them. An arrogant person that says, no way, I want this circle to remain, you stay on the outside, is not saved. It's divine love to convict a person regarding their need to repent. It would be cruel otherwise. Hey, do this thing right here. What does that mean? Guess. Your salvation depends on it, by the way. That's the same thing as saying to a dead person, hey, get up and walk, or else you're going to hell for all of eternity. Get up and walk, or else you're going to hell. I, I can't get up and walk. Conversely, it would be the exact opposite of love, cruel even, for God to say to a person, repent when they have no idea what to repent from in the first place. Remember, the encouragement that we ought to be sharing with others, particularly the humble, is up here on the board. It's okay, because you're going to have people show up at your doorstep that are broken that have lived the worst lifestyle, you, worse than you could ever dream of living. They're going to show up at your doorstep. What are you going to tell them? Oh, there's no way you can make it into heaven. Look at you. Are you going to say, don't worry about it. God loves you just the way you stand. Do you want the truth? I think you already know it. You're a train wreck. Can we get beyond that? Yeah, you've got to be willing to turn from that. You're willing to leave that behind? And it's funny because that's who Jesus dined with, isn't it? Prostitutes and tax collectors, not the self-righteous jerks. Because the self-righteous jerks didn't want what he had to offer. Didn't want to repent. Said, what am I going to repent from? Because they were arrogant. And arrogance closes out God the Holy Spirit's convicting ministry and says, no. So this is what you, this is the encouragement you give a person who shows up broken. God's grace always provides the means to accomplish his demands. That God loves not despite himself. He doesn't bend, his love's not bending. It doesn't accommodate a selfish lover in arrogance. It's looking for humble. It's looking for humility. And it just blows your socks off. Oh, you've murdered three people? Hey, maybe we're in a good place to talk about the gospel. That's why I think prison ministries are so successful. Because you got people that are completely distraught and have realized 
just as a basis of the now condition that they need God. And in God's world, being in prison, if that's what it takes, is actually good. Because this person, even if they have to go another 30 years behind bars, what's that compared to all of eternity if he can save them as a result? If that's the conversion process that was required for that particular form of arrogance. Sounds like grace to me. Up here on the board, it's easy for God to give His grace, but impossible for Him to give the flesh's version of grace. It's impossible, you see. It's easy for Him to give grace, but impossible for Him to give the kind of grace that people have perverted grace into. Contrary to this, we have what is being peddled as godly in Christian churches today, and we have to fight the wave of so-called Christianity that continues to gain momentum in our own beloved country even. Somehow, God's grace has been postured as a license to sin. What I found is the the, the greatest so-called advocates of the grace gospel are a bunch of people who have taken grace, perverted it to such a degree, they use it as a license to sin. They say, well, God's gracious and loving, so I can just stay the way I was born. God's grace has been perverted to the degree where people use it as a license to sin. This is in complete contradiction to Paul's treatise on the subject. Go to Romans 6.1. Romans 6.1. That's what we have in Christianity today. A bunch of people who say, God loves me so much and He's so gracious and so merciful that I get just to live whatever, any way I want to live. I don't expect them to change me. I don't want them to change me. But I got my free ticket, you see. And everybody's going, yeah, yay, play the rock music louder. Let's make this an emotional upheaval. Let's pretend. Let's usurp the Word of God. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's how some people live. I've known people that say, that live like hell. Now, I'm not being legalistic, don't get me wrong, because we all go carnal once in a while, right? That live like hell, and then they quote something out of, out of uh, context. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a license to sin. You just took that out, completely out of context. That wasn't applied to people who are living like sin, so you can continue to live like sin. But doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that um, love covers a multitude of sins? Doesn't the Bible say that? Yeah, it does. But that's not a license to sin, you jackass. You self-absorbed unbeliever who claims to be a Christian. 
Sounds harsh, doesn't it? What do you think I'm fighting for? What do you think this is about? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Some people think so. Some people keep on sieving. They go, see, see how lovely and gracious God is? I get to live like a complete moron against my Lord and Savior's desires and I still get to call myself a Christian. I'm still saved. No, you never were changed. Because with that attitude, it's obvious you were never saved. But you might be surprised what you see in Christianity today. What does Paul say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Here's what we know from Holy Scripture up here on the board. What love isn't. God's love isn't a license to sin or live a sinful lifestyle while claiming Jesus as Lord. God loves enough to inform man of his sinfulness, but he's not willing to accommodate sinful flesh as a function of some non-biblical form of grace. That's not found in Scripture. And speaking of strategies, as I mentioned earlier, Satan likes to pervert all these key definitions with one specific tactic being to twist a person's understanding of grace. I'm convinced this is one of the keystones of Satan's strategy. Remember, a strategy is this overarching um, direction, and a tactic is an individual thing. And one of his tactics, under the umbrella of perverting definitions, is to pervert grace. And it's a big pillar in his operations. This I'm absolutely convinced of. Up here on the board, Satan's strategy, the surefire way to pervert the gospel is to pervert the grace of God. If you can twist the grace of God into something that it was never meant to be, then you've got the gospel by the horns. Because if you don't have grace right, you will never have the gospel right. One of the things worth reiterating here from last week's lessons is that such perversions have dire consequences, experientially even, not just eternally. For example, in a very real practical sense up here on the board, this house built on sand, some people's self-esteem is founded on false grace. Who they are even is based on some perversion of grace or love or God or Jesus. They have founded it upon a perverted grace that says something like, quote, God is so gracious that he turns a blind eye to your self-fulfilling lifestyle and that this is divine love. That's not love. And God's not interested in that kind of love. There's a reason why he inspired the word of God that speaks directly against such things. It's so that you would know. And you would encourage people, unbelievers especially, to know the difference, to not buy the lie. 
But you know what? This is how I sleep at night. I'm sure many of you can relate. Arrogance believes what it wants to believe. That I'm also convinced of. Arrogance believes what it wants to believe. There are people, I guarantee you, that will hear this message and ignore it and still believe what they want to believe. That's how arrogance works. Only a humble person will hear what's coming from this pulpit. An arrogant person will shut it out. Arrogance believes what it wants to believe. It will even, quote, believe perverted definitions for key doctrines such as grace, love, salvation, etc. So here's what the spirits had to say on this. Just from a different angle, that's all. Same idea. Letter versus the spirit. There exists right and wrong. Righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, good and evil. We know this from Holy Scripture. The, quote, spirit of the Bible embodies the prior. Fleshly lawyering interprets the letter of the law instead of depending wholly upon the Holy Spirit's interpretation. That's what we read when Jesus was, let's say, challenged by lawyers in Holy Scripture. He knew that they knew the law. He knew that they knew the letter of the law, but he also knew their heart. He also knew they were missing the big picture, the spirit of the law. And as a result, they were very religious, even putting people into bondage. John 5.39 has a reference up here on the board. I'll give you 38 and 39 from John 5. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You missed the point. Here I am. I am the very fullness of grace and truth. John 1.14 Here I am. The word became flesh. And you're so hung up on the letter... Do you actually can't see the perfect manifestation of the Word standing in front of you? I am the Word. And your kind is about to kill me. That's, that's, that's the big version of the microcosm that happens with arrogance each and every day when we try to evangelize and when an arrogant person hears the gospel. They'd rather murder it on the spot. And that, my friends, happens in Christian churches, by the way. What we see in Holy Scripture is that Jesus had no problem exposing darkness that was pretending to be light. Jesus also never had a problem with exposing pretenders by pointing to their lives, to their fruit, to their abiding in darkness. Never a problem with it. Why? Because as I, the Spirit stated earlier, if you're saved, you have fruit. His apostle Paul encouraged the churches to handle darkness the same way. Go to Ephesians 5.6. Ephesians 5.6. So this is, these are the words of a person who was trained directly from Jesus himself. 
and he didn't have any problem writing what he wrote, why would he? Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. What happens when someone talks about a false gospel with you? They show up, you ready? They show up, they got a white t-shirt on with a brown cross that says, I love Jesus on it. And suppose it's that person I talked about earlier that really doesn't understand salvation even. But they have a shirt, don't they? Those are empty words. Let no one deceive you. Don't just take it for granted that someone who says, I love Jesus, actually knows Jesus. There's a good possibility they don't even know him. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. But didn't I wear the t-shirt? Didn't I drive the car with, with you hanging from the rearview mirror? Didn't I have the bumper sticker or the fish? So? <laughs> I never knew you. Didn't I go to church? Didn't I put all that money? Dang, I put all the money in the basket. I could have kept it for myself. And you always say, you're right. You should have kept it for yourself because I don't need your money. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even what? Expose, thank you. Expose them. Any questions? For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Do you know what a deed of darkness in verse 11 is, for example? I'll tell you. Telling someone that repentance is not part of the gospel call. That is a deed of darkness. Telling someone that repentance is not a part of the gospel call. And then passively endorsing an ungodly lifestyle by saying something like this. It's all good, my friend. I've got to abide by the doctrine of privacy and never make mention of the fact that your lifestyle is in complete contradiction to the word of God, even though you profess to be a Christian, Christ. Christian. I'll never make mention of it. Because even God respects your little circle of privacy. Right? Even God doesn't have entree into your little world. Wrong, wrong, wrong. In other words, it's not loving you might say, oh, well, I love, don't you dare, bald man, talk about my relationship with my kids and my grandkids and my uncle or my daughter or my, my neighbor or my best friend. Well, I'm going to tell you to your face. It's not loving to ignore a glaring problem in the church. It's weakness. Don't say it's grace either. Oh, well, I show them grace. 
No, you show them something that is not God's love. Because God wants to save them. What do you want to do? Save yourself from inconvenience? From a difficult conversation? That's called weakness. That's not grace. So stop hiding out behind something called grace when it's a perversion of grace. That is not love to ignore a problem. What kind of a parent watches their kid dive off a cliff and says, I'm not going to bother them because it's an inconvenience, but they're going to die as soon as they slam into the rocks below? What kind of parent is that? Is that a good parent or a bad parent? What kind of parent goes like this? I don't see anything. What kind of shepherd sees a sheep in the thicket and doesn't say a word? What do you think I'm doing right now? I'm all cut up, you see, because I'm pulling barbs off of your silliness. Some of you are like, I don't like this guy this morning at all. I don't care. I don't care. I already have a thousand bruises from you people, from your glaring stares. When's this going to be over? It's already past the hour. Go somewhere else. You want that kind of weakness from a, from a pastor? Go somewhere else. There's 20 of them versus every one of me. Just go where you hear the music. Or the, it's really tall just so it can fit the hat. Go to those places if you don't want the truth. But if you want the truth that sets you free, here you have it. It's not loving to ignore a glaring problem. It's weakness. We've become, as a society, so PC, politically correct, that we ignore the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, we allow false professors to live unchallenged by the truth. And they're right among us, and we don't say anything, and we just sort of tolerate it and say, well, whatever. And I'm not saying, uh, some of you are like, yeah, but I've already given the gospel like 9,000 times. Well, that's between you and the Lord, because the Bible also says don't cast your pearls before swine. And that swine might live under your roof, or might be a family member, I don't know. So always balance but know what I'm talking about. This stuff exists, it's real, it's pervasive in the so-called Christian church, and nobody seems to care about it. Everybody's turning a blind eye, and they're calling it grace. That's not grace. That's literally the exact opposite of grace. It takes time out of your schedule to approach someone, doesn't it? It takes a little courage some of you are like, I just need a little shot of whiskey first. It takes a little courage to approach a person that you really care about and say, can we talk? Can we talk about this? And as, a, as, as something that I was just taught from another pastor recently, last name Chan, he said, don't, don't hit me with these silly questions about how do I evangelize a gay person? You say to them, do you believe the, word, the, the, the Bible is the word of God? And you start there. Do you believe in the sovereign God of the universe? Then you start there. Because at that point, if we can agree on that, then we can just together go find scripture. 
And if you believe that it's the word of God, then when you see it says homosexuality is an abomination, then you can decide for yourself and it's an issue between you and God now, right? No. It's way easier just to take out your billy club, right? And start slamming everybody who's out of line. That's not going to get you very far either. So, oh man, now i got to be all strategic with my evangelism? Yeah. It's actually, you ready for this? You're going to have to invest some time and energy. But I just like taking my little bag of coins that I got from so-and-so and flipping it off their head. And it says John 3.16. That's way easier. And I've done my duty, right? No, you haven't done your duty. This whole life we live is about relationships. First and foremost with our holy God. Through Jesus. Amen? This is about relationships. We're people. We're supposed to relate with each other. You don't evangelize someone by flicking a coin off their forehead or lying to them about the greatest truth you could ever give someone, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or by turning a blind eye and saying you're being gracious or loving by not bothering them. That's weakness. That's not investment. That's walking away from the glaring issue. Now, before any of you run out acting like religious jackasses, I have to give you the balance statement. Because somebody's like, oh, I'm going to talk to so-and-so this afternoon. Just hold on there, Slick. <laughs> right? The balance statement. This isn't about pointing fingers like legalistic morons. This is about saving souls. Whoever you try to evangelize, they have to know that. They have to see true grace, mercy, and love when you approach them. Read Galatians 6. There has to be some spirit of gentleness in your approach. There has to be some real grace in your approach. Because you just hit them over the head, they're going to run away. And you probably damaged Christ himself. Because even Jesus Christ didn't do that, if you notice. Remember the Samaritan at the well? He's like, yeah, I see what's going on here. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? Who did he turn on? Her or them? That's Jesus. That's what true love looks like. He didn't skip out on the thing. He said, what? Don't go and sin no more. I don't want you doing that thing. So you have to approach people the right way, right? So don't become a legalistic moron. That doesn't help the the kingdom. This is about saving souls. They have to know that your interest is in alignment with the Lord's, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. So don't become that person either. This is about saving souls souls, not pointing fingers. People are going to end up at your doorstep that are completely distraught. What are you going to do? You're going to point fingers at them? So that's your balance statement. Let me just close with this. Then why all the attention on this matter? I mean, if this is true, which it is, 
Why all the attention on this matter? Why spend all this time? Why get a, uh, an otherwise, you know, calm, demeaned man? Well, that's not totally true. Why are you laughing, Scott? <laughs> Scott's like, you're red. You're color red. I remember you. You know what I'm saying. Why get that guy all fired up like every Sunday? Here's why. First of all, I'm a shepherd. Second, false profession is a very real danger. The life of a believer stands in stark contrast, contrast to the false professor. False profession is a very real danger. And the practical indicators of this, the things that let us know that this thing exists even, is the life of a believer stands in stark contrast to a false professor. Up here on the board... 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And so let me close. Let me find a spot here. On the topic of grace, since this is one of the perversions of all perversions in so-called Christendom today, on the topic of grace, it's not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. To do as Jesus, his apostles, and his spirit command, to repent. It's not disrespectful of one's so-called privacy to, quote, expose their unfruitful deeds of darkness. Ephesians 5.11 Rather, it is a real show of divine love. It's not burdensome. To follow his commands. Do you know the gospel call is a command? If that's burdensome, we have a problem. It's only a burden to the flesh. It's not burdensome to do as Jesus, apostle, and spirit commands to repent. It's not disrespectful of one's so-called privacy to expose their unfruitful deeds of darkness. Rather, it is a real show of divine love. It's not gracious, it's not loving to turn a blind eye. What you saw this morning with all its vigor, as some of the old folks would say, P and V, nobody. That's, you saw true love come from a pulpit. You saw a vessel motivated properly to expose unrighteousness in the churches. Maybe in, in some of you. That's what you saw. But that's what love looks like. It just wants the truth. It just wants the truth to be known. It's in alignment with our holy God of the universe that said, I just want everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of me. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to fellowship with you, to hear the truth. Though it's truly convicting and it stings sometimes, Father, we know that it's from the truest wellspring of love, grace, mercy, 
all with the intent of saving souls. Father, thank you for the privilege of hearing it this morning. Thank you for the spiritual gifts that operate in doing so. We just ask for your blessings as we take these things that we've learned this morning out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again.